Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we are going to be looking at the passage starting in verse 9 today, 9 through 17. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. You're receiving sinners and refusing the self-righteous is central to the Christian faith. Uh, the gospel is not for those who think they are good, uh, but for those who know that they are bad and they come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. All of my life I've heard people say, well, you Christians certainly aren't perfect. And I always feel like saying, well, tell me something I don't already know. Um, or you hear people say, I'd never go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. And you want to say, well, come join us. You'll fit right in. Uh, uh, you see, everyone in the world is or has been a hypocrite. Uh, the difference is that true Christians are willing to admit it. Uh, we know our faults. We recognize our sin. We know how corrupt our hearts truly are. Uh, you see, most people have the idea that religion's for good people. But the truth is, it's for bad people who recognize just how bad they are. Uh, that's why they come to God. Now, in this text, we find one of the most definitive, dramatic, insightful, comprehensive statements our Lord ever made. It gives us the divine perspective on his ministry. Uh, it gives us the basic rationale for the incarnation. It is one of the most important statements recorded in Scripture. It's found there at the end of verse 13. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, God has come for bad people, not good people. Uh, that's the message of Christianity, the essence of the gospel, the reason for the incarnation. Why did Jesus come into the world? To call sinners, those who know they have terminal spiritual disease, those who are desperate, who are hurting, who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are weak, who are weary, who are broken. In other words, sinners who know they are sinners. To them, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the world considers uh, Augustine of Hippo, to be a great saint. He said this, Lord, save me from that wicked man myself. Uh, John Knox affirmed as perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland and certainly 
a man that most would think to be a man of great righteousness. He once said, in youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. Uh, John Wesley wrote, I'm fallen short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. And consequently, my whole life, seeing an evil tree, cannot bring forth good fruit. And his brother, Charles Wesley, who wrote so many wonderful hymns, in his hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, wrote these words, I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am. Uh, one of the great ministers of God during the 1700s was a man named Augustus Toplady, uh, who in addition to being a minister was also a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn Rock of Ages. Uh, and speaking of himself, he wrote this, Oh, that ever such a wretch as I should be tempted to think highly of himself. I that am of myself nothing but sin and weakness, in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing. I who deserve damnation for the best work I ever performed. Uh, the Apostle Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Paul summed it up all up for us when he said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Uh, and undoubtedly he had in mind this statement by Jesus recorded here in Matthew that I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. I assume you're glad about that. Uh, if he came into the world for only for the righteous, there wouldn't be anybody in his kingdom uh, because there's none righteous, not even one according to Romans 3.10. But there are many who think they are righteous, and he can't help them because in their minds, they have no need. You see, that's why the gospel has to be negative, because people don't come to Christ for a solution unless they understand first that they have a problem. Uh, they don't come for healing unless they know they have a disease. They don't come for life unless they know they're dead. In fact, the uh, German theologian, Julius Schievent uh, made a tremendous statement. He wrote these words, This then is conversion, to accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. What a great statement. We, we have to first accept the death sentence. Uh, Jesus came to expose us as sinners. And that's why his message was so penetrating, so powerful, why it in a sense, tore the scab off of self-righteousness of men and exposed their evil hearts. It was necessary so that they might see themselves as sinners. You'll never win a friend, a relative, a neighbor, a co-worker, or anyone else to Christ until they know that they need him. Let me set the context for you as we approach this passage. As you know, Jesus is presenting the Messiahship of Jesus. And he's trying to prove it every way possible. And as we said before, in chapters 8 and 9, he verifies Jesus as the Messiah by describing some of the miracles he did. They're not random miracles. They are categorically selected to show the range of Messiah's credentials. In fact, they're not even chronological. Uh, Matthew selected these out and put them in place. Other Gospels have them in a more chronological order. But he put them there to show how they fulfill all of the Old Testament uh, expectations. You have nine miracles, three sets of three, and after each set of three, there's a response given. The first three dealt with disease 
and sickness. They showed Christ's power over illness and infirmity of the flesh. After those miracles, there was a response. Then there, there were in that response, there were three would-be disciples who came. We saw that they were half-hearted and shallow and superficial. They said, we want to follow you. But when they heard what the price would be, they left. And so the response was sad. Then there was a second set of three miracles. And the first emphasized Christ's power over the elements of nature, the wind and the sea. And the second emphasized his power over demons. And the third, his power over sin. And that's where we are in chapter 9. Jesus has just forgiven a man's sin, uh, totally, comprehensively, and completely. And next comes the response. And this time the response is divided. There's a positive response and there's a negative response. Uh, the positive response comes from a sinner. The negative response comes from those who think they are righteous. And so we want to cover this passage. In verse 9, we see the call of Matthew. That's the first part of the response, the positive. Then uh, he sees a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office. He says to him, follow me. He arose and followed. Positive response. Uh, then he enters into a dialogue with the Pharisees, and there is a negative response, as those who considered themselves righteous rejected the gospel. Remember, Jesus has just forgiven sins. Matthew makes that clear in verses 1 to 8. He has the ability and the power to forgive sin. So the question comes immediately, well, how much sin can he forgive? Whose sin can he forgive? Whose sin does he not forgive? What are the parameters, the extents, the dimensions of his forgiveness? And therein lies the reasons that we find what we find in the following verses. He, for, he can forgive sin, yes. He forgave the paralytic. But whose sin can he forgive? How far does it go? Whose sin does he not forgive? What is the required response? What's necessary to experience this forgiveness? All of these questions are answered in what follows. It's an incredible passage. So let's begin with Matthew's positive response and look again at verses 9 and 10. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now get the picture here. Jesus has been teaching verses 1 to 8, probably in Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, the paralytic is healed. His four friends and he have gone home. And Peter has probably already arranged for someone to repair the roof of his house. Uh, Jesus goes out the door. The meeting is dismissed in that house. But the other synoptic gospels describe what happened next to us, uh, for us. In Mark 2 and Luke 5, we're told that Jesus went out to the seashore, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd was following him and he was teaching them. I'm sure that after seeing him healed the paralytic, they were hoping to see another miracle. They're astonished. They're fascinated. They're amazed. Uh, the meeting may have been over inside the house, but they followed him down to the shore of the lake. And as he walks along teaching the crowd, we come to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, in the other Gospels, he's called by his name Levi. Uh, Mark identifies him as the son of Alphaeus. Uh, it was not uncommon for a man to have two names. We see that all the time in Scripture. Thomas was called Didymus. 
Bartholomew was also known as Nathaniel. Mark was also known as John. Saul was also known as Paul. Uh, Silas was also known as Silvanus. Uh, and a Levite named Joseph was also known as Barnabas. Uh, it may have been that Jesus gave Levi the name Matthew, uh, much like he did with Simon, who became better known as Peter. Uh, the name Matthew means gift of Yahweh. Uh, so Levi and Matthew are two names for the same person. And verse 9 says, Jesus saw him sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, if you don't know anything about Matthew as a person, there's one thing you can recognize from this verse, and that is that Matthew was a humble man. Why do I say that? Because he reduces his whole conversion to one verse and says absolutely nothing about himself. Uh, but what he tells us in that sentence is that Jesus forgave his sin and called him to himself. You see, the question in Matthew's readers' minds would be, how far does Jesus' forgiveness of sin go? Yes, he forgave the sins of the paralytic and he healed him. But just how far does this forgiveness go? What kind of people is Jesus willing to forgive? And so Matthew says, in effect, he forgave me. Now, how is that significant? Or is it significant? Yes, it is. You see, Matthew was categorically considered to be the vilest person in Capernaum. By the evaluation of every Jew living in Capernaum at that time, Matthew was the most wretched sinner in town. He was the most despised, vile, corrupt man in Capernaum. How far does Jesus' forgiveness to sinners extend? It goes all the way to the most extreme case. That's why he uses himself as an illustration. You see, Matthew just mentions that Jesus saw him sitting in the tax collector's booth. That was his job. He was the tax collector for that area. He was a publicani. That's why you see the transliteration publican in some translations. Uh, a publicani was a man who served the occupying Roman Empire to collect taxes on his own people. Uh, the way a man became a publicani was that the Roman government franchised out the right to collect the taxes in a certain district or certain town, and that man could buy that tax collection franchise. So they were considered traitors. They were wealthy because they had the power to uh, over-assess the value of the goods they taxed. And because they were wealthy collaborators and had regular contacts with Gentiles, they were pariahs in Israel. They were banned from the temple and synagogues. To a Jew, nothing was as heinous as being anti-nationalistic, anti-Jewish. To hire on to the oppressive conqueror who has your people in his grasp would be inconceivable to the Jewish mind. Uh, he literally bought his way into the Roman system. He bought a franchise for taxation from Rome. And then Rome required he collect a certain amount of taxes. And anything he could get over that, he could keep for himself. And the Roman government, in order to keep him happy and on their side, would support him in his excesses and abuses. So when he did overcharge and when he did extort the people, 
he had the Roman army behind him. And so there was gross oppression and abuse. He only had to pay Rome a certain amount, and everything else he could get was his own. Uh, tax collectors then would take bribes from the rich, and they extorted from the middle class and the poor. So they became hated and despised as traitors of the worst kind. They were amassing fortunes at the expense of their own oppressed countrymen. And most of the Jews believed it was wrong to pay taxes to the Romans. They believed the only proper government over them was a theocracy, the rule of God through his appointed leaders as they had been under since the time of Moses. And that's why the, the Pharisees' question about paying taxes to Caesar was so carefully contrived. If Jesus had simply said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, uh, he would have gone against everything the Jews believed. They believed that God was the only one who should receive anything they had. They believed only in the theocracy. And so they despised the fact that the Roman tax system was not only legal extortion and anti-nationalistic, but it was also anti-religion. Uh, they even went further than that. Uh, the great Bible scholar Alfred Edersheim uh, says that not only were tax collectors banned from the temple and synagogues, they were not allowed to have any religious or social contact with other Jews. Uh, tax collectors were included, get this, they were included in a list with unclean animals from the Old Testament. So they were like a pig. Uh, they were forbidden to be a witness in court uh, because they could not be believed. Uh, they were known as flagrant, flagrant liars. Uh, they were classified with robbers and murderers. Uh, Edersheim goes on to explain the categories of tax collectors in Israel at that time. Uh, the first category were the general tax collectors, and their job was to collect the regular taxes. There were three of them. There was a land tax, sort of like our property tax. Uh, there was an income tax and a poll tax. Uh, the poll tax was sort of a registration tax. In other words, if you were alive, you got to pay the poll tax for being alive. Um, so three taxes. Land tax was assessed on the crops you grew. It was 10% of your grain and 20% of your fruit and wine. And now you think, oh, that's not too bad. Well, remember that on top of that, the Jews were also paying into their system, which would have been about 23% a year. And so they got 23% to the, to the Jewish system and then they got this other to the Roman system and uh, then they had an income tax that was one percent of your earned money we all wish it were, ours was that low uh, and the poll tax was a set figure that varied from time to time uh, the general tax collectors collected those taxes their title in Hebrew was goodbye uh, and I only tell you that because when you send in your taxes you say goodbye to your money uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so you won't forget that term. The general tax collector was the Gabai. Uh, that's G-A-B-B-A-I. Um, and his job was to collect those basic regular taxes, and then he would add surcharges on that to make his own fortune. But there was another kind of tax collector. This one dealt in taxes that were other than those established taxes. Uh, his job was to collect duty taxes on everything else. Uh, we have the same thing in our society. We have 
certain land or property taxes and we have income tax but then we also have all those other taxes sales tax on what you buy at the store the restaurant or wherever uh, taxes you pay every time you fly on an airplane taxes the airlines play pay when they land at an airport uh, vehicle and boat license fees gasoline taxes tolls to drive on certain roadways and bridges import taxes export taxes the list just goes on and on and they did the same sort of things. Uh, now, duty taxes were given to a different man. Now, he's part of the publicani, but his title, he was a Mokesh. Mokesh. Uh, M-O-K-H-E-S. Uh, he was able to collect taxes on all import, all export, everything bought, sold, everything that traveled over, every road, every harbor, every town, everywhere and everything. Uh, and Edersheim says that they could invent taxes on anything they wanted to. They could put taxes on axles. So the more axles your ox cart had, the more taxes you paid. If you, so if you had a two-wheeled cart, it was cheaper to transport than a four-wheel cart. Uh, pack animals could be taxed depending on the type of animal and how much it could carry. A donkey was cheaper than a horse or a mule, which was cheaper than a camel. Uh, there were highway and roll tolls, uh, road tolls. So if you traveled on certain highways through certain towns, there was a toll for doing such. Uh, they had market taxes. If you wanted to have your little business in the local marketplace, you paid the Mokesh a tax. Uh, if you were a commercial fisherman like many of Jesus' disciples, you paid taxes on your boat, the, paid taxes on the spot where you docked it on the shore, and the number of fish you caught. Uh, they could and would open and inspect every package coming along the road. And they had a right to open, even open every private letter to see if there was business going on in that letter. And if so, they could attach a tax to it. Uh, they had unlimited authority to collect taxes, and they did so with the force of Rome backing them up. Uh, the Gabai were despised. The Mokesh were more despised. Uh, they were unlimited in the abuses. They were oppressive. They were unjust. And Edersheim says that they were the ones who sat at where cr roadways crossed and merged as Matthew was doing. Now, Matthew would have been sitting by the north port of the Sea of Galilee and would have been collecting taxes on all that was taking place on the lake. All of the fishing business and goods that traveled across the lake. You see, Capernaum was under the rule of Herod Antipas. But the eastern shore in the Decapolis was ruled by Herod Philip. And thus it was considered to be another country. And Josephus tells us that Rome allowed Herod Antipas to collect and use taxes on the goods that came from the Decapolis. So Matthew was in a prime location. He would have been at the strategic convergence points where roads between Damascus in the east and Caesarea to the west uh, on the Mediterranean coast and Jerusalem to the south all met. And so he taxed everybody going east and west. And he had one of the most lucrative tax franchises that the Romans had let out. But he wasn't, so he wasn't a goodbye, he was a Mokesh. He was the more hated of the two oppressive and unjust, extortive, robbing people, taxing for everything, and having the Romans behind him so that intimidation and threat was there. 
Now, how do we know that? Because the text says he was sitting in the tax collector's booth. Now, Edersheim explains that of the Mokesh, there were two types. Uh, the first were called the great Mokesh. Uh, they were the higher position. They hired others to sit in the booth. The great Mokesh stayed behind the scenes because they wanted to kind of keep their hands clean on the outside. They wanted to have a better reputation, so they didn't want to be out collecting taxes face to face. But then there were what the Jews called the little Mokesh. They collected the taxes themselves. They were the ones who sat in the booth because they were too cheap to hire someone else to take their place. They were too greedy. They wanted all the money. They weren't going to hire somebody else to sit for them. They, weren't, they were unconcerned about their reputation. They didn't care what anyone else thought. It was one thing to be a goodbye type of publicani. It was worse to be a mokesh. It was far worse to be a little mokesh. You know what Matthew was? Matthew was the little Mokesh of Capernaum. The worst, most corrupt man in the city. By far, as far as the people were concerned, he was the most wretched human being in their town. They hated him. They paid him because they were afraid not to. The rabbi said, quote, for a little Mokesh, repentance is well nigh impossible, end quote. In other words, if there was one sinner who could never be forgiven in the town of Capernaum, it would be a little Mokesh named Matthew. And there he was, sitting at his table, doing his thing. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Can you imagine the gasps from the crowd? This was Matthew. And I want you to notice that Matthew doesn't talk about himself or how honored he was to be called an apostle or what he could potentially do for Christ. He doesn't say a word about himself. Why not? Because he knows what kind of man he is. He knew what a corrupt sinner he was. I'm sure Matthew was a man under conviction. You know, I believe you have his conversion in verse 9. You just don't have all the details. You see, we often think Jesus just went along the shore, saw a group of men, called out to them, follow me, and they just jumped up and followed him saying, well, I'm not sure what we're getting into, guys, but it looks like a pretty good deal. No, Jesus had ministered all over the area around Capernaum. They knew who he was. They knew everything he taught. They, they knew everything he did. They knew his wonders, his miracles, his signs. They heard what he said. They knew he had come for the forgiveness of sins. They knew exactly what they were getting into and they were ready. Their hearts were prepared. And so I believe Matthew was a man under conviction. He'd heard about Jesus. He knew that when he looked at Jesus and he looked at his own life, that he was a worthless sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. But the system of Judaism told him that he could never have it. So he wasn't in Peter's house seeking Jesus like the paralytic had done. He was down by the lake in his booth collecting his money because that's all he was consigned to do. But he recognized his sin. He recognized his need. And so when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me, Matthew jumped up and followed. Uh, he didn't, th there's not even a discussion. He didn't say, well, Jesus, what's this going to involve? I've got a significant business to shut down here. No, he wasn't like those superficial disciples that we studied who 
wanted to follow Jesus so long as he let them go home first and take care of all kinds of matters that would take them weeks and months or even years to finish, and then they would follow Jesus. No, he got up and followed him. Incidentally, that word follow and follow me is a present tense imperative. That is, follow me and keep on following me. Jesus commanded Matthew and Matthew obeyed immediately. In fact, in Luke's account of this in his gospel, he adds that he left everything behind. Matthew doesn't say that. Uh, he won't t say that because he's too humble. He's not going to talk about what he left behind to follow Jesus. Uh, I mean, if you were a fisherman and Jesus said, follow me, you could follow. And if things didn't work out, you could always go back to fishing, right? Uh, but if you're a tax collector and you got up and simply walked away from the job, you can never go back. Because the next day, Rome's going to have somebody in your place and it's all over. So the price that Matthew paid was far greater than many of the other disciples paid. He walked away, and Luke says he left everything behind. He didn't say, well, Lord, I'm coming, Lord, but hey, if you need me to, I can finance this whole operation if you let me just bring a couple of these money bags along with me. He didn't say that. He just followed. Jesus didn't need Matthew's money. In fact, that may be one reason why we never hear about Roman soldiers trying to chase Matthew down to arrest him for abandoning his post. Uh, he left everything there. He didn't take any of it with him. Uh, he was probably the wealthiest of the 12 disciples before Jesus called him. And in an instant, he became impoverished for the sake of obeying Christ. Why? Because deep down in his heart, he had hoped for forgiveness. He must have longed for what Jesus offered him. And that's why he left it all and followed Jesus. You know, true conversions like that. When you see someone who is truly converted, they're not trying to hold on to the garbage of the past. They can't unload it fast enough. Uh, and he was that way. Jesus fixed that look of love on him, searched the depths of the inmost part of his soul, and turned him instantly into a man of God. He didn't need to think about it. When he heard, follow me, he was up and gone. Edersheim puts it this way. I thought it was great. He says, he said not a word, for his soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace. Isn't that great? His soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace. Uh, he was redeemed on the spot. Far from being depressed about what he left behind, he couldn't run fast enough to get to Jesus. I'm reminded of William Borden and C.T. Studd, uh, two men of great wealth who, when Christ saved them, gave up their wealth to go to the mission field to serve Christ. Borden died en route to the field after giving up his millions as an heir to the Borden milk fortune. C.T. Studd left all behind and went to China and later to Africa. When notified his father died and he had inherited what was a fortune at that time, rather than accept it, he gave it away to the Moody Bible Institute, to George Mueller's mission work with orphans, to George Holland's work with England's poor, and to the Salvation Army. Uh, I guess for Matthew, he didn't understand why anybody wouldn't follow Jesus when Jesus offered forgiveness. Uh, Matthew lost a career and gained a destiny. 
he lost his security and gained an unimaginable adventure. He lost material things and gained a spiritual fortune. And Matthew understood the spirit of the Lord. He knew he had come to save sinners. He knew that he was the worst, the unforgivable, the worst man in his town. And that's how far God's forgiveness goes. That's how deep it reaches. Well, Matthew was so overwhelmed that he decided to throw a banquet. And it was the banquet attended by the most corrupt sinners in the history of Jewish banquets. Because the only people Matthew knew were rotten, wretched, vile sinners. No one else would come near him. The respectable people in the community despised him. So the only people he knew were people like himself, prostitutes, thieves, irreligious, godless, other tax collectors from nearby towns, perhaps the local Gabai and other Mokesh from the surrounding districts. And they were the only kinds of people who would accept his invitation. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us that it was him that hosted the banquet, because again, in his humility, he doesn't talk about that. But Luke tells us that it was Levi, Matthew, who gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And it says, Luke 5, 29, there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. In our text, in Matthew's gospel, he calls those other people sinners. Uh, that's almost a technical term in the Jewish society for people who have no concern or respect either for the Mosaic law or for the rabbinic traditions. Uh, they're looked upon as the vilest, most wretched, and worthless of all people. And yet that's who Jesus was dining with in Matthew's house. Now, this wasn't just a small gathering of family and a few friends. Uh, Matthew invited every crooked tax collector and vile sinner he knew. Uh, and like so many new believers, he first thought his first thought that he had was to win his friends to Christ. Uh, so he holds this banquet in his own house, and Jesus is the honored guest. And not only was Jesus there, it says his disciples were with him. Now I'm sure that some of them were more than a little concerned about that. Uh, to associate with such people was a quick way to become despised and rejected by the society. But these guys believed that Jesus was their Messiah, so they did whatever he told them to do, and right at that moment it included dining with tax collectors and sinners. So that is Matthew's positive response to Jesus. Jesus commands him to follow me, and he immediately abandons everything about his past life and follows Christ. And then he immediately calls all his friends together and introduces them to Christ. That's the positive response. And before we start looking at the negative response, let me just pause and ask if there are any questions or comments on any of that that we've looked at. None. You all now know the whole tax structure of the Jewish system. Yes. M-O-K-H-E-S, but the S is pronounced like S-H. Of Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't just a guy sitting there. There's a whole lot more to it. 
Well, let's look at the negative response. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You know, even today, some snooty, arrogant people might say, well, he shouldn't hang out with those kinds of people. Uh, and that's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Uh, but that's not the way Jesus operated. Uh, you know, don't you, that there's a right way and a wrong way to fellowship with sinners, right? Uh, I hope you understand that. The wrong way is to carry on with them in the same debauched activities and claim that you're trying to win them to Christ. The right way is to be their friend, to share a meal, to help them out when they have needs, and give them wise biblical counsel when they're going through difficulties sharing the gospel with them. Uh, you earn the right to do that when you, when you have become their friend and shown them the light and love of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus is our example of how to do that. Uh, you all know what Jesus became known as. Matthew eleven nineteen tells us that they called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, and that reputation probably started right here with his attendance at Matthew's banquet in Capernaum. Now, obviously, the Pharisees had heard about this banquet going on, and so they go over to Matthew's house, and they wait outside. Now, the text doesn't really say that, but we know that because they would never have dared to go inside with all the corrupt riffraff from throughout Galilee who were gathered inside that house. But they're not there just to wait until he comes out and hear him teach some more. They're there to confront him. They're outraged that this teacher who claimed to uphold standards of righteousness even higher than their own uh, would willingly sit down and eat with such a flagrantly evil group, sinful group. I'm sure that they were also a bit ticked that he'd never shown them the same kind of respect. Uh, I mean, they're probably reasoning, well, if he's really a man of God, why hasn't he attended a banquet with us? After all, we're the greatest examples of religious purity in the entire Jewish society. Later on, Jesus did that. Uh, he dined with a Pharisee in his house there in Galilee. But at the time of this banquet with Matthew, Jesus had not yet done such with a Pharisee. So they linger outside and they wait until the banquet is over. And then as the disciples come out, they don't confront Jesus head on. They corner the disciples and they ask, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, that's not an honest question. It's not at all. What they're really saying is a stinging rebuke. Uh, this is the venting of their bitterness. It's sort of like saying, shame on you guys for fraternizing with a teacher who hangs around with such trashy people. Uh, their, their motive was not to learn the truth, but to accuse and entrap and convict this presumptuous upstart who was turning their religious system upside down. They're, they're saying truly religious people, pious people, righteous people like us shun such vile sinners. That's what they're saying. You know, there are a lot of people in the church today who act the same way. Uh, their world begins and ends with people who are in the family. And all they can do is stand and criticize the ones who are outside. 
Rather than having sympathy for the lostness of their friends and associates, they looked down on them as worthless sinners, forgetting that but for the grace of God, they'd be in the same condition. And even if a particularly vile sinner has become a Christian, they're very hesitant to associate with them because of their past. I recall an incident from many years ago, which a young man whom I had arrested some time before was sent to prison for seven years for burglary and theft. He was a drug user, a Satan worshiper, had tattoos to prove it, including a pentagram tattoo on the back of his hand. Uh, but shortly after arriving in prison, he was genuinely saved. And he served four and a half years and was released with time off for good behavior. When he got out, a friend invited him to Lakeside. He came and we reunited, the cop and the former criminal, and became good friends because we were both, now we were both in Christ. He decided to attend a home fellowship one evening, and while there, he was asked to share his testimony. Uh, the host had no idea about his background, and he shared about his life of crime and drugs and prison and Satan worship and how Christ had radically changed him. And you would expect the entire group to rejoice over what the Lord had done in his life. But the next Sunday, the host of that home fellowship came to me very upset. And she said, how can you let him go to our home fellowship without warning me that we have a thief coming into our home? We have such nice things, and who knows if he's truly saved. I don't think I want him to come back to the study. He might decide to break in our house and steal our stuff. I remember telling her first that I believed he was truly transformed by Christ because of the four and a half years that he'd been in prison. Uh, he was a believer for four and a quarter of them. And his commitment to Christ was proven in the fires of ridicule and persecution in prison where he remained faithful to Christ during that time. Secondly, she should have rejoiced in the work that Christ had done in his life and should be excited to have him return to the study again. And third, I told her it was wrong for her to look down on him in that way. And fourth, her attachment to her earthly possessions was far too strong. Needless to say, she wasn't happy with my response. Uh, but you see, she had an attitude like those Pharisees. She saw herself as righteous and godly, but not him. In her mind, he was still a worthless sinner, regardless of the evidence of the transformation in his heart and the change in his life. And it wasn't long after that we decided that we would not host a study in her home anymore because we couldn't guarantee that other sinners that she didn't approve of wouldn't show up also. As it turned out, that man has gone on to continue in his walk with Christ. He went on to study at Bible college and seminary. He now lives and works in Tampa, attends an excellent Bible teaching church there, is married to a wonderful woman and comes back to Lakeside every year for our Christmas music program. Uh, we have had him and his wife in our home to socialize, and we've had many laughs of joy over how the transforming work of Christ changes the hearts of a hardened criminal and a crusty old cop to become good friends. Uh, and by the way, he spent a good amount of money to have the satanic tattoos removed from his body. Uh, so... Getting back to the text here, the Pharisees say, what kind of leader have you got 
who hangs around with such scum. And apparently Jesus overheard that conversation. And that brings us to the next point, which you're going to have to wait until a couple of weeks to hear. That's Jesus' answer. But we're going to stop there uh, because of the special activities of today, and I don't want to, to create a problem with uh, you getting seats or anything else up there this morning because we don't have assigned seating this morning up at the church. So I don't want that to be a problem for you. Well, let's. Any other questions or comments? I just wondered if the ladies remained in the church. No, no longer a part of the church. No, she didn't just leave. They they were here for a while, but they they left and uh, went elsewhere. Still run into them occasionally, but uh, they went elsewhere. So, all right, let's let's pray.